Hello, thanks for inviting me. Um, uh, the second I got this recording. Yeah, um, I just, you know, um, presenting, I mean, giving a talk on uh, online is not my favorite uh, uh, way. And um, I was really struggling when I had to teach like this for a year. Uh, and the, only, uh, the reason I say it is that I will not be able to uh, watch the chat while I'm giving the talk. So uh, please, you know, it's a small group, just jump and ask questions, you know, don't, don't be shy. So just interrupt me. Don't be English, interrupt me whenever you want and ask questions. Okay, good. I actually um, monitor the chat as well. So don't, don't worry about that. Okay, thanks. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, some background. So um, the usual uh, uh, fun at uh, academic used to be that, uh, well, they have amazing theory, but you know, it's usually doesn't work in practice. Uh, what's happening uh, today in machine learning is actually the opposite. Uh, so uh, we have a lot of uh, heuristics that seems to work. And we'll talk in a second about what this means seems to work. Uh, the theory behind it is relatively weak. And so what uh, my group and I uh, and many other people in uh, the theoretical uh, machine learning now are trying to build theory and understand why what works works and of course once you learn when once you learn why it works you also learn when it doesn't work when it works and when it doesn't work and that's an important issue in uh, machine learning these days because practical people also in industry uh, push software and claim that you know it does you know whatever uh, while in particular, when you use it for critical uh, decisions, one has to be very aware of the limitation of, you know, the software. And of course, I'm sure you all know uh, this issue about uh, bias uh, and other uh, social issue related to modern machine learning. But uh, before we get even to this moral issue, there's basically a technical question. Uh, you know, if you didn't train your software on the right data, if you don't know what your software is doing, then you know you should be very uh, careful what you promise uh, when you sell the software or when you publish it. Okay, so um, particular. I mean, I don't. I think this audience doesn't need to hear that. But uh, when I talk to uh, more practical people, I um, kind of tease them by saying, "Well, you know, if you only think, if you are, the only thing you know about uh, your uh, algorithm that uh, is that works well on uh, your test data." The basically the only thing you know is that works on your test data, test uh, data, and you don't know anything else. And in fact, any generalization claim, of course, requires a model. And that's synonym to start building the theory. And if you don't have a model, you don't know what claims you actually have um, about your software. So uh, my background is uh, theoretical computer science. In theoretical computer science, basically, you don't have a proof, you don't have a paper, you know, there are no experiments, no data. Uh, but uh, I, I find it very interesting, uh, also very much influenced by students, to move into this uh, area of machine learning. Uh, but the focus of what we do in our group is trying to build theory to that. And so that's all. Uh, you know, the first step in theory is, yeah, is trying to explain why the software works or why the particular machine learning technique works and when does it work. 
And then we see that uh, the doing it in a more or less a rigorous mathematics is not a limitation. And actually, when you really understand what you're doing, you often can get uh, better algorithms. And then uh, again, it's very important to quantify uh, the limits of uh, the work. So in this particular talk, I'm going to talk about uh, a very specific, very hot area now in machine learning, which is called zero shot and uh, few short learning or weak supervision. And this slide is usually at the end of the talk, but I want to emphasize one thing in the slide. So to do this kind of work, we I found out that the best way to do it is by collaboration with uh, a very practical group. So behind all the names here, uh, Steve Bach is a rising star in experimental uh, machine learning. And so he's, uh, so uh, this, set of works are part of a collaboration with him funded by a big DARPA grant. And so uh, Alessio Mazzetto here, here and here is my graduate student. Uh, also Cyrus Cousin was uh, my graduate students, but um, uh, Dylan and Andrew are undergraduate students that were helping in experiments and they work with uh, Steve Bach. And Christina is, uh, postdoc that is basically joined to our two groups. And so uh, while you see theory in these talks, we'll also have some experimental results. And I just want to give credit that experiments were not that my were not done by my group. We don't have the data, we don't have the expertise, and that's why we're collaborating with experimental people. Okay, so what's this hot subject zero shot and few shot learning? And if you open our NIPS or NIRP, or ICML, or you see that there is a lot of papers on this area and, and kind of the subject these days. Okay, so we all know that the big bottleneck in machine learning is data. So, you know, the way we uh, were taught machine learning is machine learning basically learn from examples and try to generalize that. And in almost all applications, particularly when you go to deep learning, uh, you need a lot of data. And the quality of your results uh, highly depend on the quality of your uh, training data and the size of the training data. But training data is expensive. Uh, often uh, you have to pay to get it. Sometimes it's even hard to get it anyway. anyway. And so uh, under this uh, big umbrella of uh, zero short and few short learning, the idea is to learn with no examples, with no training data, or with very few training data. Okay, and it seems to be a very uh, impressive, has seems to, be, to have impressive uh, results in practice. And on the other hand, this whole idea of studying without data sounds like absurd or a tradition, sounds like, you know, complete nonsense. So uh, it's obviously very challenging to try to build theory around that, okay. So that's, this attract our, our interest uh, just because it looks to us, again, as theoretician, as like complete absurd. How can you study with no example? And the answer, of course, is the name is actually somewhat misleading. It's true that uh, you learn with no training data or with very small training data, but you learn from some other information. And so you have all sorts of other auxiliary information that you build on in order to do the learning. Okay, and there are 
since it's relatively new area, there are a lot of variants of that fall under this name. And one of the things uh, we did as theoretician is, first of all, we try to abstract some model out of this. So uh, we, I'll talk here about uh, two abstractions. One of them is for uh, future learning, where the information comes from other classif classifiers that are classifiers for different data. And we'll see later what uh, it means. And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, zero-short learning, and here, uh, the idea is that I have some information in terms of attributes that are uh, characterized my goal, my target classification. Okay, so let me give you first some high-level examples before we get to the mathematics. So assume that someone already trained almost perfect classifiers, say for tomatoes, trucks, airplane, ladder, and width. Okay, so you have these tools in your head. And now I tell you, oh, I need a classifier for fire truck. Okay, well, so you seem to be able to learn what's red and what's not, and what's a truck and what's not, and so forth. So the idea is that I want to build on having these classifiers in order to classify a new target. So in more general way, I have classifier for related uh, classification, mildly related, and I want to somehow aggregate on them in order to get a classification for a new target. Another way uh, that this is done, it's almost the same, but in practice, uh, it looks very different, is um, I have pictures, images of uh, various subjects, and I have features associated with these uh, 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 figures. So, you know, I have a color and, you know, whatever stuff about bears and about zebra. Okay. So now for each of them, using these uh, images, I can learn how to detect features like black, white, brown, stripes, water, eat fish, maybe. Okay, so I can learn from these images classifier for these features. Okay, so now I'll give you a new target and I give you the target in terms of features. So you already know how to find the features in the image. And the question is do I, have, do I give you enough information here so you can actually? Uh, more or less uh, accurately uh, classify with respect to, again, a new unlearned target. So this is kind of the high level idea behind all this uh, zero short and future learning. And again, I want to emphasize that since it's a new area, um, you know, many papers have, you know, somewhat different formalization. And one of uh, the first contribution here is we're trying to really formulate in more or less general mathematical uh, format. Okay, so just presenting it as a picture. So uh, the whole process is uh, I get some unlabeled data. I want to uh, classify X. And then I get uh, some classifiers that are not for my target. So there's a target. Uh, I want to classify X with respect to some target class. I don't have a classifier for that. But I get a classifier for a related target. Okay, so this can be 
you know, the color or whether it's a track or not, stuff like that, or other features that you can find in X. So now the only real information that you have about X is its classification according to this N features or related classifiers. And now you want to aggregate this, this information and in order to give the labeling of X according to the new target. And the two uh, way to do it is, or the two extra information you have uh, is in the case of a, a few label examples, the only thing that you know about the, the target is from a few examples, much fewer than what you need to other actually really classifying, really build the classifier for the target you know, from scratch. So this is for the few label uh, examples and a, the other way is that you don't have example at all, at all. Well, there's some other way in which you should get some information about the target, and you get it in terms of a kind of a matrix that uh, give you the conditional probability. We'll see details of um, the attributes uh, to the target. Okay, um, so we'll uh, see three results, and let's look. Um, about a, a weekly supervised learning. Okay, so now let's get a little bit uh, more formal. So we have a distribution and we have a classifier, which we don't, we have a, a classification, which we don't know why, uh, defined on the domain X. And then we have some set of uh, labels, classifier, but they're not classifiers for Y, they're classifiers for something else. Okay, now, um, for each of these related labels or function phi sub i, we use the few example or the small training set in order to estimate the error of this classifier with respect to the target. So if you think about it, um, say the classifier here phi sub i is whether the image has a track, and y is whether the image is fire track. And so here you have the arrow, which is basically the probability that we have a track that is not a fire track. Okay. So again, the only information that we really have about x is its classification according to this uh, related classifiers. And now we're looking for a function that map this vector. So assume that everything is binary here for simplicity. So we have a vector, binary vector, and we want to uh, map it to uh, the, class the target classification. And the error of this f, of course, is uh, the probability over the domain that our real classifier, the real classification, the target classification is different than what we get from the function over the, uh, this binary vector. Okay, so the first thing we observe as we start, and this is really the first uh, work that we did uh, in this area. So the first thing we observe is that uh, in practice, and uh, for those who know, for example, there's a very popular software called Snorkel that uses it. So uh, what they do is basically they borrow technique from what's called out a crowdsource. Okay, so what's crowdsourcing? So crowdsourcing is you know what uh, Amazon is doing for you or stuff like that. So you give a 
images uh, to a lot of uh, labelers and by hand they label the features and there are some errors and somehow you have to handle uh, the error because some of the labelers are uh, more careful than the other or some uh, images are harder to label than others, okay? So, but uh, what's common to uh, crowdsourcing is that uh, all the sources, the labelers, they're working for the same task. We ask them whether the image has a dog or not. And they try to answer this question. Some of them are doing better job than the other, but basically they have the same goal. They have to uh, uh, classify an image according to a particular target. So a reasonable assumption in crowdsourcing and all the algorithms that try to correct for crowdsourcing, they uh, use it is that the error with respect to the real answer are independent. So if the, uh, the labelers are not coordinating in some adversarial way, and why should they do that? Then we assume that, yeah, they make mistakes because they work fast, because they're not so careful, but the errors are independent, okay. Can we assume the same thing here? Well, if I look at the question, you know, uh, does the image has a wheel and it's not a fire truck? Okay, is this event independent of the question, uh, the image has a truck that is not a fire truck? Of course, they're not independent because the truck has a wheel. Okay, so this assumption that was used in so many uh, important software is actually wrong. And you can show that the error can be significantly large. So uh, assume that uh, the individual uh, labelers have errors, epsilon one to epsilon with respect to the target, okay? Then if the labels have error, independent error, then by taking the majority, you know, you, the error basically, of course, goes exponent, exponentially down to zero, okay? But if they're not independent, then it's not the case. And in fact, the error is no better than, you know, the median error about all the, among all the classifiers, the related classifiers. So that's, you know, although people say that the software, you know, doesn't work that well. So can we do better? So the truth is that if now come, you know, with theory can help you get a better algorithm. So if you think about it a little bit more carefully, you see that actually dependency is not necessarily the easiest uh, case to analyze or even the one that give you the most information. So assume that we have in this picture, we have three classifiers, W1, W2, W3. And assume, of course we don't know that, but assume each of them has arrow epsilon and this bug love here are the arrow of the classifier, okay? So now if the arrows are disjoint, they are not independent, the arrow are disjoint, then a majority is always so it's correct. So that's great. The classifier don't have independent error, but actually majority of them, you know, has no error. On the other end, here's the independent case. Okay, so, uh, you know, each intersection of error has about probability epsilon over two. Okay, and now if you take majority, then your error is actually three half epsilon. Okay, so in fact, independence it's not so great if you want to take majorities. So how do you leverage on this phenomenon? Okay, so actually to really see 
where we're going. So let's look at this even worse example. So assume that we have uh, classifiers uh, W4 and W5, that their error is a subset of the error of W3. Okay, so now if we take majority, then all this always gonna have the wrong answer, okay? But if we eliminate these two classifier four and five that are included in three, then suddenly majority will be perfect result, okay? But of course, we cannot do that directly because we don't know where are the errors of the classifier with respect to the new target, okay? Of course, we can do it in pictures, but we don't really know that, okay? So our goal is to start with this set of weak classifiers that we get. And the idea is to get a subset that has almost disjoint errors. So we want to get to, we can't get to this, you know, perfect situation, but we want to uh, take out of a lot of classifiers, we want to take a few classifiers such that their error are disjoint. But of course, we don't know the errors. Okay, uh, uh, by the way, then after we find a classifier that have more or less the join error, then we just take a majority as before. Okay, so the only idea is we take majority now of a well-chosen subsets instead of a majority of the all, all the classifiers. But of course, we don't know the error and we don't know if the error is uh, disjoint or not. But what we know is that this classifier and this classifier disagree on more points, more places in the domain than this classifier. Okay, these two classifiers basically agree in almost everywhere. While this classifier disagree on area or on measure or two epsilon, okay? Now, the important thing is the to measure how much disagreement you have between two classifiers, you don't need labeled data. You can do it on unlabeled data. And unlabeled data is cheap. The expensive one is labeled data. So what happened now is we're going to leverage on unlabeled data to get information that would help us find this joint, more or less this joint classifier so that we can take majority over them and get a much better result. Okay, so now I get it a little bit more formal. So again, we have the weak labels, we have a lot of unlabeled data, and we have a small set of labeled data. Okay, um, now we know for each labeler, we know the error of this, or we have an estimate of the labeler, of the error of this label with respect to the target because we use labeled data to estimate. Now it's important that here we're estimating a linear number of parameters, okay? We estimate a linear number of uh, errors, okay? Now we estimate the metrics of the disjoint disagreement, okay? So now we're estimating quadratic number of parameters, but we can estimate them using unlabeled data and that's cheap, okay? So now what's the error that we would get, okay? So if we choose a subset I out of all the classifier and we'll do the majority out of this subsets, 
Then the worst case error we have, okay, well, it's the error of this uh, majority, okay, but over what? So over all possible classifiers that satisfy this vector and this matrix, okay? So we're not going, so we max over all possible, in particular the adversarial set of weak labels. And the only thing that restrict the adversarial here is that we know the set of errors, the vector of error, and we know the matrix of overlap. So the worst case error here is the max over all set of labels that satisfy this epsilon and delta and D, and the error uh, on that subset. Okay, so so far we are in theory, but what can we do with that? So uh, I, don't, I won't get to the detail, but uh, basically you can figure out the maximum error using a linear program. Okay, and the linear program is, uh, you know, the number of uh, constraints you have here is a function of uh, i, size of i, okay? So, so now for a given subset, we can uh, figure out the maximum error that we can get. And again, I have to emphasize was getting it again and again that we don't really know what's, how bad can be the target with respect to our distribution. So the only thing we can do is we take the max over all possible, uh, all possible uh, examples that we get, all possible uh, weak, uh, weak classifier. Okay, so for a particular I, a particular subset, I know how bad it can be. And I want to find, you know, a low bound for any subset. So I have to look at a mean over all possible. So now I can optimize the I that I choose. And for each one that I choose, I know what will be the worst case error for that one. Okay. So in other words, I have to solve this min max problem. It's not easy. And in fact, the solution for this would be exponential. The runtime will be exponential in the size of the subsets in K, okay? So that's good as long as K is small. Uh, if K, if you want large K, this become more and more expensive computational, okay? But for three, if we are willing to work just with subsets of three, yeah. then we can right. actually solve it, yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, excuse me to interrupt you. Uh, could you uh, back to the slide uh, when you are going to introduce uh, your variables and this one, yes. First, uh, I have the question. In the laborers uh, non-overlaps definition, uh, the, uh, you are going to define X uh, with distribution D. This distribution yeah. is the uh, overall distribution, overall data set of different tasks, you mean? This is the distribution of the input of that we need to classify. Uh, if I understood correctly, for your problem, you are going to consider different tasks as an input, yes? 
I mean, there are different. Yeah, but 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 we assume for simplicity, we can also do transfer. But let keep it simple. So the tasks are defined on the same distribution. On the same distribution. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, what think, is... think about the huge database of images. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you know there are all sorts of things in the images, and but the distribution is over all images. Okay, and uh, uh, in your analysis, you'd. Um... Uh, do you consider any uh, sample complexity? I mean, that respect to the, the number of, for example, unlabeled data or labeled data or not? It is independent from the number of labeled data or unlabeled data. Well, okay. So the labeled data should be large enough so that I get a relatively good estimate for uh, the epsilons. Okay? okay. So basically, I need a, a log of uh, n, you know, Square data in order to, you know, with high probability, get a good estimate for the epsilon one to epsilon n. Okay, and then the unlabeled data. Well, now I have to estimate uh, quadratic number, but unlabeled data I don't count. You know, that's cheap. Okay, thank you. Good. Thanks. Okay, so uh, it seems. The solution is not fully satisfiable with this for computer scientists because, you know, if I really want to optimize with respect to large sets, uh, you know, this might be exponential in uh, the size of the or the subset that I'm considering. But then, for at least three, for for three labels, we can get, you know, a close close a, a form solution. We don't even have to do the linear programming. Now, how good is it? So now. We stop, we pause theory for a second, and we get to experiment. So uh, this was done on a, a standard benchmark uh, for images is anyone's the attributes. So you have all sorts of anyone's and you know, they have tail, they have color, whatever, and you classify with respect to that. Okay, and what do we have here? So the PGMV, this is the algorithm I explained when we only use three labels. The other two algorithms here, a P and D, are a greedy extension, which are not fully analyzed, greedy extension beyond three, where you add more and more a, a weak classifiers, okay? And what you see here, which of course, there's no theory about that, but in this particular data, it seems like three is as good as many. So if you choose if you choose the optimal three weak classifier, you already get enough information as if you use more than that. But again, this is just data. Can, can now, I just ask what happens yeah. if you only use two labelers? No, it doesn't work. Uh, it's not work, okay. <laughs> yeah, because, um, okay, so I, I was going to talk about it later, but maybe okay. I should emphasize here. Oh, you so, can do it so, so what we get here, is um, we get the marginals of the error, which are the epsilons. And the pairs are the you know, correlations. Okay. Now, you want more than just pairwise correlation in order to get you know, a very strong one. We'll see, when we get to a more sophisticated algorithm, we'll see that uh, where it can play. Okay, and then uh, the yellow one here, this is the algorithm. Uh, this is the standard uh, 
crowdsourcing algorithm, which is also used in, in, uh, in uh, this uh, context, which basically you assume independence. And if you assume independence, uh, if you take three out of, or you take some of the labels uh, and you don't have too many of them, then uh, you, know, you get a lot of errors. Somehow in the example we have, and again, this is not theory, uh, somehow when you go to many more labelers, the majority seems to uh, perform much better. So maybe somehow it um, correct for uh, the case that are not independent. But it's still, uh, even for uh, a lot of labelers, and you know, it's very happy computation, uh, it still doesn't reach you know, an algorithm that just, just use the best three and also supported by theory. Okay, so that that result, uh, but it's very limited. It was uh, kind of the first theory paper in that area, but it was only for binary classification, only for zero one loss function, and you know a lot of other limitations, in particular the complexity. So uh, our next work, which I'm going to uh, discuss here, is um, somewhat more general framework to uh, build on weak labelers. And now we're going to use either a loss function and also we're going to be uh, doing multi-class uh, classification. That means you classify between more than two classes. Okay. So here's the high level idea and that's really what I really want to emphasize. So we have a set of unlabeled data, X sub U, that we want to classify. So let's this, uh, you know, diamond here, uh, the, brown, the gray one, be all the possible labeling. So each point here each is a vector of labelings for the I-labeled data, for unlabeled data. And we, here we, at this point, we have all possible labeling. Okay. So now we got to leverage on a small amount of label data in two ways. Okay. So first, I'm going to use the label data to get an estimate of the error of each of the weak classifier with respect to the target. Okay, because the label data is labeled with respect to the data, uh, to the target. Okay. So the loss of phi i x l y l is the expected loss of a oh that's mix up here this is the expected loss this should be here and this should be here okay so the loss phi i x l y l is the lost expected loss of phi i with respect to the target Okay, this should be in this line, sorry. Okay, and now comes the second trick. Given a classifier, phi sub i, and a labeling of all the data of x sub u, since we, we, since we know phi sub i, we can estimate the error of phi sub i with respect to the goal of phi sub i, when, when we use a, for this vector y, okay? So again, here, here 
we are estimating the error of phi sub i of the weak labeler with respect to the target. Here, we estimate the error of a particular labeling vector y with respect to phi sub i. Why do we do that? Well, we'll get to a more formal way to do it later, but we kind of assume, we can assume that the error of phi i on the correct labeler y should be around the same error that we get, you know, for the uh, for the uh, label data. Okay, so this label data, so phi i, so this here we have the error of phi i with respect to the target on the label data. Okay, now if y is a correct labeling, then the error of phi i on y should be about this value, okay? So again, using the label data, we got an estimate of the error of phi i with respect to the target. So now, if we generalize, then for any correct labeling y of the unlabeled data, we expect to say to get the same type of error of phi of phi sub i. Okay, if phi sub i had this error with respect to the target on the labeled data, it should have the same on the correct labeling of the unlabeled data. Okay, so what happened here is that for each of the labelers, we get a subset of the whole domain in which the labeling according to that labeler has about the same error as it has on the label data. And the true error, the true classification has to be in the intersection of all these areas. Questions? That's, I know that's um, kind of pushing it. Okay, we'll see it again here. Okay. So let a white diamond be a set of possible solution that we consider. And what do we know about this? Okay, so be more formal, it's a set of vectors y, which uh, give any input, m, unlabeled data m, and um, and a k, which is the number of possible classes. And we'll assume that y give us this a vector of a probability. So we are doing soft classification. Okay, so for any particular input x, y include a vector of length k that gives the probabilities that x has any one of the k classes. Okay. So now, if y is a feasible solution, then we expect that phi i error on y will be the same as or close to what we saw as the error of phi i on the label data. Okay, this value we estimate from the label data. So we assume that this 
value, the, the real value, the real uh, labeling of the unlabeled data should give us about the same value plus minus some error, okay? So if we choose the error correctly, then what we get is with high, very high probability, the true solution will have to be inside this set, okay? And this set is basically the intersection of the values of y that satisfy these intervals. So you, so okay. you take the same error margin for every um, phi i? Uh, yeah, that's one possibility, yeah. Okay. I, since we don't have, I mean, again, the, since we don't have any better information, um, there's no reason to take different errors. Uh, if I knew a priori that the errors of, you know, have different distribution or something, then I could leverage on that, but I, do, I don't have the information. This is kind of, you know, a worst case analysis. I'm really analyzing using what I have. Okay, so basically now I build a set, which hopefully, hopefully is much smaller than the total set of all possible labeling. And with that high probability, the correct labeling is inside this set, which is the inter intersection of all the, uh, all the uh, set defined for particular labels. Questions so far? Uh, excuse me, and the no. ML is the number of label data, yes? Sorry, the? ML in the definition yeah, of- Yeah, and here it's M, yeah. So yeah. here it's M and before it was M sub yeah. Uh, and ML is the number of label data, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. And if the ML is going to infinity and we consider oh. the M is going to be constant, then the gamma is uh, constant, yes? Well, if ML goes to infinity, then I'm back into standard supervised learning. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, yeah. uh, this setting means that if the ML is going to infinity, this formulation means that, uh, again, we have uh, a constant gamma. However, we expect that the gamma should be zero because the ML is infinite, yes? Yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, okay. So you, you get this limit because you assume that ML is, is a constant, otherwise, you're right. I mean, you can use Hofting or Chebyshev and get a better bar. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Good. No, that's a very good point. I mean, this is, um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. So we know that the solution will be inside this set. Okay. In perfect world, the set would have one vector. But of course, in real life, it's not. It's going to be a set, hopefully not too large, and we'll quantify that in a second. So the next thing we do is, again, we're going to say, well, if I choose a particular, so, okay, so now let's HT be some function of, we now parameterize the solution. And so we have a set of possible solution H sub T, and they're a function of uh, the fees. Okay, and we want to basically minimize minimax uh, optimization on the loss. Okay, so what's minimax? So, uh, of course, we'll, like, we'll take the minimum over theta, but then we'll have to take the maximum over y 
over all the uh, possible distribution that would fit them. Okay. So uh, the first one, assume that uh, we fix theta. Okay. Then again, finding the maximum error among all the feasible uh, y's. Uh, so this again can be done in linear programming. That's not the interesting part. The hard part is the mean overall theta. And we can solve it in general. And, but even if we take convex sets, uh, we still have the, uh, the problem that the max here uh, might not be differentiable. So we can't do gradient descent. So uh, I won't get into detail, that's a completely different subject, but there is this area of uh, subgradient uh, analysis, which basically estimate gradient uh, when you cannot assume that there is a derivative there. Okay, and you can show that in a number of um, steps, that's um, basically a polynomial in our values, you are going to get uh, a theta, you can estimate theta uh, tilde here, that is going to be very close to um, you know, the mean max solution. And Take my word on this, uh, the details are in the paper. I won't get into this, but this uh, subgradient descent, uh, this subgradient method is actually, uh, uh, I mean, it's all, I think you can uh, trace it to Newton, but uh, it's very practical when you, uh, you cannot assume that everything is differentiable. Okay, so uh, in kind of polynomial time, we can uh, get, a, a parameter theta tilde such that h tilde, h sub uh, theta tilde would be almost a solution uh, for the min max problem or give us the right answer. When can we do it? Okay, so we need the set of course to be convex and we need the loss function to behave you know, smoothly, and in particular, we do it for a Lipschitz con uh, continuous uh, function. Again, you can choose other restriction, but you need some restriction, particular complexity to get anywhere there. And, you know, what loss function uh, uh, satisfy that? So popular soft, uh, uh, loss function that satisfy this condition are softmax and uh, uh, Bile uh, loss method and stuff like that, loss function and stuff like that. Okay. Now I just want to say one word about uh, the generalization bound. So, uh, so far, and I didn't elaborate too much, so far we gave a solution which is a soft classification, but you might want actually to say how far to ask how far this is from uh, the hard classification, if I just want to be one. I cannot solve it directly for the hard classification because it's not continuous, so I really can work with this. But uh, we can actually get a pretty good bound on that. And the bound are related to, well, the optimal one, uh, the error that we get from the gradient, uh, for the super subgradient method, um, the Radamahar complexity of force has to get there. Otherwise, you can use covering or whatever, but something like this has to be there. 
and then you have the error bar. Okay. And the last thing I want to emphasize is this kind of analysis give you a related information that is very interesting on its own. So this measure is a measure of the size of the feasible set. And the size of the feasible set basically says, how good was the information that you gave me? If you gave me weak labelers that are useless, then my feasible set will be the whole set. If you gave me very good related labelers so that together they really you know, pinpoint the target, then the, uh, the feasible set will get smaller. And this is a way to measure that. Okay, and this will take us to the last thing, if you allow me to continue another few minutes, can I? Yes, I, I think don't... that is fine. And so if someone needs to leave and would like to ask an urgent question, uh, maybe we can just give them the chance to ask one now. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, that doesn't seem to be the case. So nobody's showing up. So, so please do continue. Thank you. Okay, thanks. So um, again, there's some simulation that I, the only thing I want to show is, uh, okay, so here, um, here we actually use this, again, the method is to multi for multi-class multi -class classification, but there is very little uh, algorithm to compare with in the multi-class. So first we look at this and say, well, what happened when we run this algorithm just for a binary classification? And remember that this PGMC is what we did before, okay? And what you see here is that we do get somewhat better than the algorithm uh, for the, um, the just, just as majority. So you can actually even for binary classification, this uh, more tight analysis give you better. And these are results for um, um, a non-binary uh, classification. I don't want to get into too much into this. Okay. So the last thing I want to say, and I really agree feel, um, is that uh, we look at zero-shot learning, which is, you know, really the ultimate hype these days. And we wanted to ask question, the following question: What information you need to give me so that you give me a result that is meaning, meaningful, okay? So again, what is a zero-shot learning? Um, so uh, you get a lot of images, and from the images, you learn attributes. And again, attributes like classifiers. So, you know, so you, you learn whether it has, the animal has a tail, stripe, the swim, whatever. Okay, so from images, uh, so what you learn is you learn how to find these attributes in images, okay? So basically your input is first of all algorithms or you know, learning technique for a identifying a set of attributes in images, okay? So this is, you can think about it as, you know, the uh, related data that is already um, uh, classified and you use it in order to learn these attributes. Okay. Now we don't have any uh, examples, any training data. So in order to get any, in order to figure out, you know, the target, what I get is I get a matrix, 
that relates the attributes to the different classes I have to distinguish between. Okay, so I have a matrix that basically says, well, you know, if uh, a zebra with this probability would have a tail, you'll see a tail. By the way, remember that images are confusing because a zebra might have a tail, but not every image of a zebra will show the tail. So there are probabilities here. Okay, so you get this uh, matrix of basically conditional probabilities. Okay, so now we want to ask basically, okay, so how do I do it fast? Okay, so the only previous work that was done, uh, basically look at it the following way. Here's the target, okay? Here's the, uh, here are the features that we know how to find, okay? Here's the error in finding this feature in images. So here's how good we find the error, uh, the features in an image. And here is the mapping or the metrics that translate the features to the classes our target classification. Okay, so basically this is our input. This is a process that extract features from the input. And this is the process that map features into the classes, the target classes. Okay. So <clears throat> and I'll just say, yeah, and the only previous work, you'll be surprised you can publish it as a paper, basically says the following, basically show the following, uh, most of his experiment says, well, you know, if A is, you know, um, uh, is, you know, basically identity metrics, then sure, you can classify, everything would work great. On the other hand, if the attributes are completely orthogonal, to the classes you want to um, classify, then of course, there's nothing you can do. So what's orthogonal, you know, think about this and this feature and this feature, uh, this attribute and this attribute. Well, you know, you don't, you cannot get much out of these two attributes if you want to distinguish between zebra and whale. Okay. So this was very weak uh, result and we wanted to, um, you know, build a more, uh, more detailed theory here. Okay, so what we assume here is assume that the first phase is correct. Assume that given an image, you get the attributes. There are no errors. Of course, if you have error, it's additional error, but assume that this is work. It's fine. What we really want is we want to understand the error in the mapping between feature between um, attribute of features and the classes. Because this is, you know, at the hell out of the whole of the whole method. Do I get enough information in the features or the attributes that I see in order to actually distinguish between the classes that I need to distinguish with, between the targets, okay? And in most of the practical work, this is completely ignored. They completely ignore the question that maybe the attributes that you see don't define completely the targets that you want to classify. Okay. Um, so, okay. Um, so here is a formalization for this. So again, we have a domain X, 
We have a multi-class classification. Uh, and again, we have this set of attributes, okay? And each attribute basically take a domain and uh, map it to uh, zero one. So it has a tail, it doesn't have a tail, stuff like that, okay? And what we get is we get this matrix, uh, which is a class attribute matrix. Okay, and basically said the AJI said the probability that over the data that the feature is one condition on the target classification is J. Okay, so in other words, uh, what's the probability that when I have an image of zebra, I actually see the tail, stuff like that. Okay, so that's the matrix, okay. So now I look at all the possible distribution. Again, I don't know anything about the input. So I have to look at all the possible distribution, you know, between, you know, the uh, features or the attributes and the K classes, okay. And out of all the possible distributions, we can restrict ourselves to the distribution that satisfies the condition that defined by the metrics. So what does it mean it satisfy that? Well, the probability of a particular vector, if a particular vector has classification J, has to be equal, basically it's the marginal distribution over the metrics. Okay, so it's, uh, some of all the vectors, the probability that they get J, uh, you know, multiplied by uh, AJI. Um, this should be I here. Yeah. Okay, so this defines, you know, distribution that satisfy the matrix. And of course, uh, we can define for a particular classification function G or particular function from the attributes to uh, the classification, we can find define the error of this over the distribution P. And now again, as before, uh, what we want to find is a low bound. And the low bound again is over all distributions that satisfy the condition that are defined by the uh, uh, attribute class metrics. Uh, and then uh, the mean overall functions classifiers uh, of the error of uh, for this function and this distribution. Think about it in probabilistic term. Think about it for think about it as follow. We know the marginal distribution. Okay, we know the probability of uh, a class of a feature i conditional class j. We don't know the correlation between the events, okay? So basically what we look is we look for the worst case distribution subject to the marginals that we know, okay? So we only know the marginal, so we'll have to assume for the worst case, we have to assume that we look at the maximum, the maximum error with respect to all the distribution that satisfy this marginal, okay? And then we assume that for each particular distribution that we actually choose the best classifier. So this is a low bound, 
again, so far, just theory, uh, the real thing here is that we actually can compute the slope one. And why it's important. So currently you get a zero shot algorithm and you run it and you get an answer. You don't have a clue how good is your answer. You don't have a clue how much you should trust this answer because there's no theory associated with this. So what we do here is we give you some handle on how much you should trust it or what is the risk in using this input, uh, this output. Why it's the risk? Well, you might be in a better situation. We don't know. But in the worst case, that's the error. That's at least that error that we can have. Okay, so in other words, it might be that you have a better input, but the worst case over the input will give you this error. And since you don't know better, you should you could as well assume that this is the error that you have in your use of the algorithm. And we can also show that this is tight. In order to show that it's tight, you have to um, work with randomized classifiers in order to get the usual uh, um, you know, min-max uh, min uh, results. Okay, so in other words, you give me the standard thing you give me in zero-shot learning, you basically give me a way to learn attributes and a mapping from the attributes to the class, to the target classes. Okay, that's the only thing I have. And I ask, if I use what you give me, and if I use it the optimal way, what can I guarantee about the error? what I can guarantee about the correctness of the results. And here, what we show is that if you don't know anything more about your distribution, about your input, then you can't guarantee uh, to have better than this low bound on the error. Of course, there might be cases in which you get better, but you can't guarantee that because you don't have information. Okay. Um, it's Easy to solve it also for the linear case. And again, the simulation is that I just want to say one word here. So this, okay, so this is um, this is the low one result for some uh, data. It's again, it's the animal with attribute data. Okay, and these are various algorithms. Okay, and the error of these various algorithms in practice are indeed larger than the low one. Okay, and another way uh, we use it, I didn't talk about it in detail, is that we can actually use the, the way this analysis to figure out which pair among the K classes are the hardest to distinguish. Because it might be that you have a large error, but the error is just because two particular classes are not distinguishable, while all the other classes are well classified. So here, uh, there's a way to actually uh, quantify which classes are you know, the one that gives you the all. Okay, I think I took uh, too much of your time, so I'll finish here. Uh, if you have any questions? Well, th thank you very much, first, first of all, for a very nice talk. Thanks. I, I would just stop the recording now. <laughs> <laughs>